The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The Quest for the North Pole is a production of iHeartRadio and Mental Floss. It's August 1818, and two British naval ships are dodging icebergs in Baffin Bay on their mission to find the Northwest Passage. John Ross commanding HMS Isabella and William Perry in the HMS Alexander are farther north along the western Greenland coast than any previous explorers. They assume this land of glaciers and stark mountains is uninhabited, but they're wrong. They spy several figures running on a hill near shore, Ross assumes they're shipwrecked sailors in need of rescue, and he steers the Isabella to get closer. But they turn out to be native people, a community of Inuit living farther north than Europeans believed was physically possible. Ross, following the habit of previous explorers, immediately sets out gifts of knives, European clothing, and a Greenland dog with strings of blue beads around its neck to signal that they come in peace. Several hours later, Ross writes, The dog was found sleeping on the spot where we left him, the presence remaining untouched. Undaunted, Ross decides to raise a flag with pictures of the sun, moon, and a hand holding a sprig of Arctic heath, the northern version of an olive branch. At the base of the flagpole, he puts out another bag of gifts and a sign with a hand pointing to the ship. The following day, Ross sees a group of Inuit approach the gifts. He sends out his Inuit interpreter, John Sakus, carrying a small white flag. Eventually, he throws a knife on the ground and urges them to take it as a present. But the native people are terrified of the strange men and looming ships. They approach the knife cautiously and gingerly pick it up. After a few moments, they begin shouting with approval and pulling their noses, a move that Sakus imitates. The curious Inuit bombard him with questions about his clothing, the ships, and where he came from. Though Saku speaks a different form of the language, he finally understands that these Inuit have never before seen white people. They've never met European explorers. They turn out to be one of the last uncontacted communities of Arctic people in this region. 
From the advent of modern European polar exploration in the 16th century, right up until the present day, nearly every community of indigenous people in Greenland and Arctic North America had some encounter with white explorers, whalers, or traders. And yet, European explorers often thought of the Arctic as an empty, inhospitable wasteland. When they did describe the people who lived there, they portrayed them as relics of the Stone Age, quote-unquote savages, or childlike folk who needed paternalistic guidance from whites. Of course, none of that is true. As the historian Pierre Burton writes, during the whole of European exploration in the North, the real children in the Arctic would be the white explorers. But Native people's full contributions to human understanding of polar geography, wildlife, and climate are often overlooked. More than 40 indigenous groups totaling over a million people live in the circumpolar Arctic today. But in this episode, we're going to focus on the peoples of what is now Eastern Canada and Greenland. They had the most consistent interactions with white explorers over four centuries. In this episode, we'll try to show the other side of the explorers' stories. We'll look at how indigenous people saw the white explorers, or Halunat, in their lands, why they helped them, and how they saved those explorers' lives countless times. You're listening to Mental Floss Presents, The Quest for the North Pole. I'm your host, Kat Long, science editor at Mental Floss, and this is episode four, Inuit and the Explorers. Before European explorers began arriving regularly to Arctic Canada in the early 19th century, indigenous people there had some memorable encounters with them. The first was with the Vikings. Virtually all we know of the meetings comes from two Norse sagas written 200 years after the events. They say that when Vikings arrived in what is now Newfoundland and set up a small colony, they traded with the indigenous people, but there were deadly battles as well. It wasn't a great start to European-North American relations. Skipping ahead a few hundred years, we come to the English mariner Martin Frobisher, whom you might remember from our first episode. When he and his crew arrived in Baffin Island in 1576, looking for the Northwest Passage, they saw a group of Inuit in kayaks coming towards them. One of the crew described them as having long black hair, wearing sealskin clothing, and paddling boats made of sealskin stretched over a wooden frame. The women had facial tattoos in blue ink. During the first meeting, the Inuit were just in awe. The Halunat came with their huge ship, a revered elder named Inuki Adami told the Canadian anthropologist Dorothy Harley Eber in the 1990s. In oral histories, his ancestors had passed on their first-hand memories of Frobisher's arrival in the Arctic more than 400 years earlier. Speaking in Inuktitut, Inuki said that the Inuit had never seen such a big ship and such strange people. They were wary. The Halunat fired two warning shots in the air. I'm sure the Halunat had good intentions, but they had never seen Inuit before, and Inuit had never seen Halunat. The scene quickly turned confusing, heightened by the Inuit's bewilderment at the Englishman's outfits. Here's Krista Uliuksawadzki, an anthropologist and curator of Inuit art from Rankin Inlet on the western shore of Hudson Bay. 
She's a PhD candidate with a research focus on Arctic anthropology, archaeology, and Inuit oral histories. I think that for Inuit, when they encountered these people in these ships that were lost or shipwrecked or stuck in the ice, I think Inuit probably thought that these guys are very ill-prepared for the Arctic. You know, they're not wearing fur clothing like we are. Cordial relations went south when five crewmen who were ferrying an Inuit man from the ship to shore never returned. Winter forced Frobisher to go home without their comrades. But before leaving, he gathered quote-unquote proof that he had found the passage to Asia, a rock sample and an Inuit hostage. The man was taken to London, where artists painted his portrait and sculpted his likeness. Frobisher surely expected to show him off to the public as a curiosity of the new world. But sadly, the Inuit man lived only a couple of weeks after arriving. Frobisher's sponsors paid a surgeon five pounds to involve the man with the idea of sending him back to his homeland. But for some reason, that didn't happen. Instead, the company paid for his burial in St. Olaf's churchyard on Hart Street in London, though the church has no record of his burial. We know of his fate only from an accounting book belonging to Frobisher's chief sponsor. The sponsors were much more interested in Frobisher's rock samples anyway. They believe they contain gold. In 1577, they sent Frobisher back to Baffin Island with a direct order to stop exploring and focus on gold mining. As the men hacked at the ore, Inuit watched from a nearby hill, wondering why the Khalunat were obsessed with this worthless rock. The scene made a big impression on them. Even in the mid-20th century, a respected shaman pointed to the shiny flecks in a river and said to his grandson, never show that to the Khalunat, it steals their minds. Though mining was their sole objective, Dionysus Settle, one of the ship's masters on this voyage, took note of the Inuit customs. He saw that they hunted marine mammals and birds for food. They lived in sealskin tents, which were the traditional summer housing of the Inuit, easily moved from place to place as they hunted migrating animals. He admired their resourcefulness in putting every part of an animal to good use. He wrote, Those beasts, fishes, and fowls, which they kill, are their meat, drink, apparel, houses, bedding, hose, shoes, thread, and sails for their boats, with many other necessities whereof they stand in need, and almost all their riches. Meanwhile, Frobisher and another crew member searched for the missing sailors. Encountering two Inuit on a beach, he tried to abduct them, intending to ransom them for the return of his men. One of the captives shot Frobisher in the buttocks with an arrow and escaped. The other was wrestled to the ground as he tried to run away and was brought back to the ship. Some of the English later explored the area and found what they thought was evidence that their missing comrades were nearby. So they chased down the Inuit and cornered them on a beach. The Inuit defended themselves with bows and arrows. The old stories say that the Inuit were so terrified of these white men in the rowboats that, thinking they were not of this world, they started shooting arrows at them, Inuki said, several centuries later. In one account, five or six Inuit were killed. The crew kidnapped a young mother and her baby. Frobisher attempted to negotiate a hostage trade for the five missing men, but that failed. So as soon as they filled their ship's holds with 200 tons of ore, they left the island with the three Inuit captives. 
What we know of the captives after their abduction comes only from English sources. Unfortunately, their own words and experiences are not recorded by history. The Inuit man was named Kalicho, while the woman was called something like Arnok, and her baby was called Nutok or Nutiok, although these words may have meant woman and child in their language. To the sailors on the ship, the man and woman appeared not to know one another when they were brought together in their cabin. But they seemed solicitous of each other, and Arnok prepared meals for Kalicho. They arrived in Bristol, England in September 1577. Like an Elizabethan P.T. Barnum, Frobisher wanted to show off the native people for paying customers and to the leaders of the city. Kalicho allegedly met the mayor of Bristol and showed off his hunting skills by shooting ducks on the River Avon with darts. Even though he was also suffering from broken ribs and other injuries, apparently from being tackled by the English sailor. All three had their portraits drawn and printed for the public. Before Frobisher could exploit them as a sideshow, though, Calicho died of his injuries in Bristol. The physician who treated him, Edward Dodding, made Arnock attend the burial to show her that the English people did not practice human sacrifice or cannibalism, as he believed the Inuit did. Arnock was unwilling to see the ceremony, and Dodding commented that she appeared stoic throughout. But she was also suffering from a disease that historians believe was measles, and died four days later. She was buried next to Calicho in Bristol's St. Stephen's Church. Frobisher sent little Newtok to London because Queen Elizabeth I was especially keen on seeing him. But tragically, the baby died just over a week after arriving in the capital. He too was buried in St. Olaf's Church. And just as tragically, none of their family and friends on Baffin Island knew what had happened to them. Frobisher was not done yet. His sponsors arranged a fleet of 15 ships, 400 sailors and settlers, and supplies for setting up a colony next to the mines on Baffin Island. But on their way there, the ships carrying their prefabricated house sank in a storm, a sight that so abashed the whole fleet that we thought verily we should have tasted the same sauce, wrote Thomas Ellis, another ship's master. The Englishmen built a few workshops and a kiln for making bricks surely planning to return the following year. An elder named Udluriak Iniak told Dorothy Harley Eber in the 1990s that her ancestors used to talk about the Queen's people. They had this deep trench and used it to repair their boat. And they also had a water supply area and the buildings they made for themselves. And there was also a place on a cliffside where they fixed their masts. That's how it got its name, Naparuksuvik, where the poles are set up. That name is still in use today. But unbeknownst to Frobisher, they would not be returning. Their gold was actually worthless iron pyrite, just like the Inuit knew. It ended up as building material all over Elizabethan England. While a few other European explorers poked around the Canadian Arctic, they didn't stay long. And Inuit life continued on as usual. Here's Krista uliuk The explorers didn't have a huge impact on Inuit other than adding to the stories that Inuit shared or told. I don't think Inuit today necessarily think about explorers as like a detriment. I don't think that Inuit necessarily think of them as like, oh, this was first contact, you know, it went downhill from there, or it was great from then on, or, you know, there's not that sort of mentality among Inuit, not that I know of. 
Like I said, a lot of the change that occurred for Inuit was around the whaling era. And so I think that Inuit appreciate when there's stories about first encounters with explorers in the sense that these are old stories and they've been passed on, you know, for hundreds of years. And that's kind of cool. You know, I think people appreciate that aspect of it. But in terms of um, their attitudes towards explorers, at least in where I'm from, you know, people don't give much thought to explorers other than James Knight. And there might be a story here or there that said, oh yeah, my grandfather remembers this story about his elders when they remembered seeing the first ship arrive. They'd never seen a ship before. And it was shocking to them. They saw it from far away and they thought it took them so long to come to shore because they didn't realize how big it was. You know, there's those types of stories, but compared to other later encounters, they're not as impactful. We'll be back in a minute. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. In 1818, when John Ross and William Edward Perry sailed up the western coast of Greenland to find the Northwest Passage, they were lucky to have John Sakus on board. Sakus was born in western Greenland around 1797. When he was about 18 years old, he found his way aboard a Scottish whaling ship called the Thomas and Anne and arrived in Leith, the main port of Edinburgh. Reports from the time indicate that he was interested in learning English and becoming a missionary. Unlike the Inuit brought to England against their will in the 16th century, Sakus is the first known Inuit person who came to the United Kingdom by choice. Sakus seems to have enjoyed living in Edinburgh. 
He sketched passersby at the harbor and even demonstrated his paddling skills against those of six men in a whaleboat, outmaneuvering them in his canoe as a huge crowd watched. Prominent artists painted or drew Sakus's portrait. One by the Scottish painter Alexander Naismith shows him in a sealskin jacket holding a harpoon. Sakus was himself a talented artist, and Naismith offered him drawing lessons. Sakus also traded lessons in Inuktitut for instruction in English and writing. He joined Ross's expedition as an Inuit interpreter. Ross perhaps hoped that Sakus's presence among the white men would put native people they met at ease, and that he would be able to sketch scenes that few Europeans could imagine. In fact, Sakus's drawing of Ross and Perry meeting the Inuit is a revealing depiction of contact. When the Inuit accepted the gift of the knife, Sakus found that their languages were close enough that they could communicate. After a brief chat, Sakus motioned to Ross and Perry to come over to where he and a group of eight Inuit stood. In the drawing, Ross and Perry are in full naval dress, complete with bicorn hats and gold-fringed epaulets, looking extremely out of place. The Inuit shouting and raising their arms wear fur parkas and tall boots, and some are gazing at themselves in mirrors that Ross gave them as presents. Zakus captured a meeting that boded well for future explorers in their lands. The descendants of these very people would play important roles in explorers' quest for the North Pole nearly a century later. According to the anthropologist Jean Mallory, who lived with the Inuit in the 1950s, Ross and Perry's visit to their home in 1818 was a cardinal date in their history. Ross made a similar impact with Inuit on the other side of Baffin Bay, too. After the embarrassing Croker Mountains experience, in which he mistook a common Arctic mirage for a mountain range, which we talked about in our first episode, Ross was basically blacklisted from leading any more naval expeditions. But he didn't give up. He got a wealthy gin distiller named Felix Booth to give him more than 10,000 pounds, with which he bought a steamship named the Victory. In 1829, Ross set off towards Prince Regent Inlet, a large channel leading south from Lancaster Sound, hoping to locate the Northwest Passage. The Victory spent the summer of 1829 cruising the eastern shore of a peninsula that he named Boothia, after his benefactor. As winter came on, the Victory hunkered down in a small bay Ross called Felix Harbor. There, they encountered a group of Inuit, the Netsalingmiut, who had had no prior contact with Kalinat. The Netsalingmiut called the spot where they encountered the victory Kablunakhyuvik, the place for meeting white people. An elder named Bibian Niviovac described the famous meeting to Dorothy Harley Eber. A group of hunters happened to be in the Tom Bay area. One hunter, named Abeluktuk, wandered away from the group and saw something strange. He went toward it and found the Kalunat. He was scared because he had never seen them before. He ran so fast that the tail of his parka flew out behind him. When he got back home, he told everybody that these were really different people with long necks and long faces. He scared everyone. The other hunters were not sure if they should go towards the ship. The shaman in their village spoke through his spirit to the Kalunat in English, and then told the Inuit that the Kalunat were not dangerous. The following day, they went to the victory. According to Eber, the tale of Abiluktuk, his flying parka, and meeting the Kalunat is still shared with laughter among communities all across the region. Ross presented the Netsalingmiut with gifts of metal implements. 
Soon a cluster of igloos went up, which Ross sketched and called snow cottages. Ross also instructed the ship's carpenter to fashion a wooden leg inscribed with the ship's name for an Inuit man who had lost his to a polar bear. The man was able to resume hunting and providing for his family, Ross noted, and wrote in his journal, I am sure the simple contrivance of this wooden leg raised us higher in the estimation of this people than all the wonders we had shown them. The wooden leg is now in the collection of the Manitoba Museum. The first winter passed with the Victory crew and the Netzalingmiut enjoying friendly relations. But Ross would soon face a nightmare. Throughout 1830 and 1831, ice in Prince Regent Inlet trapped the Victory along a 20-mile sliver of coastline. What Ross had envisioned as a one- or two-year expedition turned into an ordeal lasting four years. Four dark, frigid winters. Four years of surviving on canned food and ship's biscuit. Four years of facing the same few people. Four years of waiting to go home. The one bright spot was that, for the most part, Ross's crew avoided scurvy, the often fatal vitamin C deficiency that was the bane of sailors, because the Netzalingmiut shared fresh meat with them. The crew mounted the first phase of their escape in January 1832 by removing every useful thing from the victory and piling it on shore. Some of the supplies were bundled into caches and left along their planned retreat. Valuable instruments were buried in permafrost. The rest of the supplies were left for the local people. On May 29th, they abandoned the victory and began marching towards Fury Beach, a depot of supplies salvaged from the wreck of the HMS Fury, Perry's old ship from an earlier expedition. There, the crew hoped to repair the Fury's whaleboats, obtain provisions, and sail to Lancaster Sound, where they hoped the European whaling fleet would be able to rescue them. But whalers always left the area in August, ahead of winter, and the Victory crew didn't make it in time. That meant a fourth winter in the Arctic. The men built a hut out of the Fury's timbers and packed snow all around the walls and roof for insulation. They called it Somerset House, after the elegant London building that houses several of Britain's learned and scientific societies. Now, without interaction or food from the Netzalingmiut, days turned into a grind of boredom and malaise. Everyone in the crew had a touch of scurvy, which made them irritable and depressed. When spring finally came, they were determined to escape the Arctic or die trying. Despite their weakened state, they rode frantically to Lancaster Sound, where they prayed they would be rescued by a whaler. On August 26, 1833, a ship did spot the whaleboats and sent out an officer in a boat to meet them. As Ross wrote, I requested to know the name of his vessel and expressed our wish to be taken on board. I was answered it was the Isabella of Hull, once commanded by Captain Ross, on which I stated I was the identical man in question, and my people as the crew of the victory. The mate assured me that I had been dead for two years. I easily convinced him, however, that what ought to have been true, according to his estimate, was a somewhat premature conclusion. They were back in England by October. Meanwhile, the wreck of the victory continued to provide supplies for generations of Netzalingmiut. About 35 miles north of where Abiluktuk first saw the ship, Elder Gideon Kaujuak said in the 1990s, there are some old pieces of iron around, but a lot of it has vanished. The Inuit never found exactly where they buried their stuff. 
Hunters also tried to salvage the Victory's wooden mast to cut up for sledges and harpoons. Many families in the area repurposed the thick copper sheathing from the Victory's hull to make traditional seal oil lamps. Here's Krista Uliuk-Zawadzki. One of the misconceptions that there might be is this idea that the explorers came and it was like, bam, the world changed for Inuit. Well, not necessarily, like there's a misconception right there that, you know, it was like first contact, but it was brief and there was not a whole lot of engagement. And then that was it. You know, they came, they said hi and they left. There wasn't like this big bang that people might think happened with explorers. But early explorers did leave their mark in another noticeable way. Some of the legacies that explorers have left or some of the impacts that explorers have made is the names on our maps, like Hudson. Henry Hudson was an explorer. Now we have Hudson Strait and Hudson Bay, and it's like, that's not what we call Hudson Bay. We call it Tasiwiakcho. Elders aren't going around saying, oh yeah, on Hudson Bay, there's this and this. No, we, you know, in our language, we call it something else. And it's just like, I find that a fascinating topic. And it continues today, this like encounter of names. You know, the official Canadian government names is riddled with Kablunak names. We'll be back in a minute. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Inuit oral histories have offered critical clues towards solving the biggest mystery in polar exploration. 
In episode two, we mentioned Sir John Franklin and how his lavishly outfitted expedition to find the Northwest Passage in 1845 seemed to disappear into the Arctic labyrinth. For years afterwards, more than a dozen British and American expeditions scoured the region looking for Franklin, including one led by 72-year-old John Ross. They found remnants of Franklin's camps, but no clues about the expedition's demise. In 1854, Hudson's Bay Company official John Ray was surveying an area of the Boothia Peninsula. He met an Inuit man who related a very interesting story. Other Inuits said a group of 34 or 40 Kalunat had starved to death a few years before, some ways north of there. The man was wearing a gold cap band, which he said came from the place where the Kalunat were found. Later in the year, Inuit brought Ray a collection of objects that definitely came from Franklin's expedition. The Inuit said that some of their relatives had sold meat to the starving Kalunat a few years earlier and told Ray they had come upon the remains of the sailors in the area of the Great Fish River. There was one more horrifying detail. The men had died of starvation after resorting to cannibalism. Ray was satisfied that this was the answer to a big part of the Franklin Expedition mystery. He told the Admiralty everything, but because the clues had come from so-called savages, many in Britain refused to accept it. Charles Dickens captured the public feeling in a scathing, racist commentary in his popular magazine, Household Words, saying it was far more likely that the Inuit had murdered Franklin's men. But in 1859, the Inuit's word was proven correct. British teams set out by sledge to investigate King William Island, where Inuit said that they had seen the starving men. Along the western coast, they found indisputable evidence of their presence, including a cairn containing a note, which finally revealed what happened to Franklin. He had died on June 11, 1847, of an unknown cause. The expedition's ships, HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, had been stuck in ice for over a year and abandoned. Several men had died. The survivors were walking towards the mainland to the Great Fish River, just as the Inuit had said. And further evidence uncovered over the next century and a half has confirmed the Inuit testimony. Many questions remained, however. An American newspaper publisher in the grip of Arctic fever named Charles Francis Hall believed that there was more to learn from the Inuit, he convinced himself that there could still be survivors from Franklin's expedition. In May 1860, Hall hopped on a whaler out of New London, Connecticut. He was heading north to live among the Inuit, though they were totally unaware of this plan, and to gather further clues. Here's Russell Potter, polar historian at Rhode Island College and author of, most recently, Finding Franklin, the untold story of a 165-year search. Hall did not go up with a lot of equipment, and he, his idea was just to hire somebody. And as it happened, uh, the ship he went up on didn't get anywhere near where he wanted to go. It ended up at Cumberland Sound, which was nowhere near where Franklin went missing. So he decided to make use of his time there. Hall met an Inuit couple, Takuliktuk and Ipirvik, whom the whalers had nicknamed Hannah and Joe. They had already been to England with a whaler. They'd met and had tea with Queen Victoria. When he went to visit their igloo, Hannah said, Hello, sir, would you care for a cup of tea? And he said, oh, by God, I've, I've hooked up with the right Inuit here. And he not only worked with them and had them work for him, but he lived with them. He enjoyed, you know, in his journals, he writes with exclamation points, first night in an igloo, second night in an igloo. 
he loved switching over and sort of going native. It's the very thing the British hated. And he formed a very strong bond with these two guides. I mean, Joe was pretty much the hunter and guide, and uh, Hannah was more the translator, and worked with them for years on his two Franklin search expeditions. Paul visited their village, lived in their igloos, and enjoyed long sledging trips with Hannah and Joe. He really formed a, a strong bond there and kind of, you know, by, by the end of their time together, he was driving dogs as well as Joe. So that's pretty singular and way in advance of any other person uh, who uh, later on took up Inuit ways of travel. On one of the journeys with Joe's help, Paul rediscovered the ruins of Martin Frobisher's gold mining camp where elders had said white men had arrived in a big ship many years before. Hall even recorded the Inuit explanation of the disappearance of Frobisher's men. According to his retelling, they were left behind and lived among the Inuit until they could build a large boat. Then they set sail and disappeared. But by 1866, having found no Franklin survivors, Hall turned towards a new goal, the North Pole, with Hannah and Joe's help. The three returned to the United States, where Hall finagled a grant from Congress to buy a ship, which he fitted out for Arctic service and renamed the Polaris. With a crew that included New London whaling master Sidney Buddington as sailing master, another whaler George Tyson as navigator, and Hall as expedition commander, the Polaris left the Brooklyn Navy Yard on June 29, 1871. Joe and Hannah were aboard, plus a German surgeon named Emil Bessels. When they arrived in Greenland, they brought on Hans Hendrik, a well-known Inuit guide and hunter, and his family. Hall followed a route laid out by the American explorer Elisha Kent Kane in the 1850s. Kane's expedition had found the large waterway between Greenland and Canada's Ellesmere Island, now called Kane Basin, and mistook it for the open polar sea. Now Hall planned to sail through Kane Basin and hopefully reach the North Pole. However, the crew didn't get along, and Hall failed to restore a sense of calm. Then Hall came down with a mysterious illness. He drifted in and out of delirium. And after a period of improvement and then relapse, he died on November 8, 1871. Today, some historians believe that he was poisoned with arsenic, possibly by Emil Bessels, who had access to the ship's medicine chest. With their commander dead, there was nothing to do but wait out the winter and then head home. In summer 1872, as they sailed south, ice broke up around the ship and an immense iceberg bore down on the Polaris. They thought the ship had sprung a leak. Buddington panicked and ordered all of the provisions and supplies thrown onto a nearby ice floe. Hans Hendrik later wrote, we brought our wives and children down upon the ice and hurried to fetch all our little luggage and remove the hull to a short distance from the ship. Then the ice broke up close to the vessel and her cables broke. But in the awful darkness, we could only just hear the voices on board. And when the craft was going adrift, we believed she was on the point of sinking. Here we were left, 19 in all, in the most miserable state of sadness and tears. The Polaris and its remaining crew abandoned them. The 19 castaways were helpless and alone. Joe and Hans hunted seals throughout the winter, in the dark, and kept them all alive. The Inuit built snow huts that served as their shelter. But they had inadequate clothing and other food, and starvation was always a threat. 
As we advanced far south, we had a heavy swell, and in the pitch-dark night, the flow, our refuge, split in two, Hans wrote. At length, the whole of it was broken up around our snow huts. When we rose in the morning and went outside, the sea had gone down, and the ice upon which we stood our house had dwindled down to a little round piece. They drifted like this for six months, over a distance of 2,000 miles. They were finally rescued in April 1873 off the coast of Labrador. The master of the ship and the crew altogether were exceedingly kind to us and pitied us who had spent the whole winter with our little children on a piece of ice, Hans wrote. Hans Hendrik's memoir of his experience on the Polaris and three other Arctic expeditions was the first such published account by an Inuit person. Roughly two decades later, Robert E. Peary built on and expanded Hall's modus operandi. Hall was different from almost every polar explorer who had come before. He was just a man obsessed with solving Arctic mysteries, from Franklin's fate to Frobisher's geography to the journey towards the North Pole. And the primary reason he survived was his friendship with Hannah and Joe. His choice to live as the Inuit did was one that no explorer had then made. Now, with Matthew Henson's help, Peary formed mutually beneficial yet unequal relationships with the Inuit of Ita, the descendants of those Ross and Perry met in 1818. Over eight expeditions to Greenland and Canada's Ellesmere Island, Perry hired Inuit hunters and their families to obtain food, sew fur clothing, cook, drive dog sleds, build igloos, and other tasks that were essential for Perry's success. Thanks to Perry's regular visits, they came to rely on his expeditions for certain Western trade goods, such as guns and ammunition for hunting. In exchange for the items, the community's best hunters signed on to help his expeditions. Here's Ken Harper, a historian and author of many books, including Minnick, the New York Eskimo, an Arctic explorer, a museum, and the betrayal of the Inuit people. I'll let him introduce himself. I write uh, Northern history, and I also write about Northern native languages, uh, especially Inuktitut. I lived in the Canadian Arctic plus two years in Greenland, for a total of uh, 50 years, that's five zero, not one five. I started out as a school teacher and uh, ended up in business. I also uh, worked for the government for one year and six days, every one of which I counted because it was a mistake. And all the time that I was there, I've been uh, listening to Inuit people, listening and learning the Inuit uh, or polar Eskimos, as they were formerly called. They were a very small group, uh, a couple of hundred people living very, you know, tenuously on the ice-free parts of land uh, between the inland glacier and the sea. They had uh, developed not a heavy dependence on whalers because there weren't enough whalers in their waters to depend heavily on. So they lived a very precarious subsistence existence. Then along came Peary uh, with his uh, mission to get to the North Pole. And Peary knew that he was not going to do this without the assistance of the local people. So I think Peary always intended to be there for the long haul. I don't mean permanently there for the long haul, but back and forth and involved with that geographic region. 
for the long term. Like Hall, Perry realized that success in the Arctic meant adopting the traditional ways of the people who live there, like wearing furs instead of Western-made clothing, using skin boots instead of leather, and traveling by dog sled instead of man-hauling heavy sledges. Perry's teams also hunted and ate wild game and built igloos instead of bringing tons of packaged supplies north with them and carrying tents on their overland journeys. This method of living off the land with the assistance of Native people became associated with American explorers because it was so different from the earlier British way of doing things. And yet, despite his admiration for Inuit skills and survival tactics, Perry still viewed the people who developed them as childlike and inferior to Westerners. This was the golden age of scientific racism, when proponents of eugenics sought to scientifically improve the human race by allowing only people with desirable intellectual and physical characteristics to have children. Predictably, the white European and American eugenicists believed white people to be superior to all others. The movement gained steam in the early 20th century thanks to its emphasis on pseudoscientific evidence, which was misinterpreted from ethnographic studies of world cultures. Obviously, eugenics was fundamentally racist, and Perry was absolutely a product of his time. Here's Ken Harper. Perry was not, I would say, interested in improving their living conditions. So, you know, Perry certainly wasn't a missionary. He wasn't there to uh, teach people things, build schools, promote religion. He was there for his single-minded goal of reaching the North Pole. And so the Inuit were means to an end. He said, their feeling for me is one of gratitude and confidence. I have saved whole villages from starvation, and the children are taught by their parents that if they grow up and become good hunters or good seamstresses, Pyulachiak, that's their name for him, will reward them sometime in the not-too-distant future. It's a very arrogant assessment of his own position vis-a-vis the Inuit, but I think he was right. But of course, then when he did claim the North Pole in 1909, and he's already admitted that the Inuit have become dependent on him, he has no further reason to stay there. He leaves. Do you think that the Inuit there understood Perry's attitude towards them? That's what I just can't quite understand or get my head around. I think that they did. There's, there's another quote, I hate to burden you with quotes, but, uh, you know, the, the Inuit can say it better than I can. They were there. In my book, I mentioned that in 1967, an elderly man in the little village of Siwakaluk reminisced about Piri, whom he called the Great Tormentor. For some reason in the book, I didn't name the elderly man, but his name was Imina, and he was a man that I knew quite well. And uh, in referring to Peary as the great tormentor, he said, people were afraid of him, really afraid. His big ship, it made a big impression on us. He was a great leader. You always had the feeling that if you didn't do what he wanted, he would condemn you to death. I was very young, but I will never forget how he treated the Inuit. His big ship arrives in the bay. He is hardly visible from the shore, but he shouts, Kiha Tikapayona. 
I'm arriving for a fact. The Inuit go aboard. Piri has a barrel of biscuits brought up on deck. The two or three hunters who have gone out to the ship in their kayaks bend over the barrel and begin to eat with both hands. Later, the barrel is taken ashore and the contents thrown on the beach. Men, women, and children hurl themselves on the biscuits like dogs, which amuses Piri a lot. My heart still turns cold to think of it. That scene tells very well how he considered this people, my people, who were, for all of that, devoted to him. So that's how Emina remembered Piri. The Inuit had very different memories of Matthew Henson. They referred to uh, Matthew Henson as Maripaluk. That was his uh, Inuktut name. By all accounts, uh, Henson was a very different personality than Peary. He was kinder. He was, uh, you know, on the land, uh, traveling. He was a tough guy. He was a good hunter. He was a good sled driver. He did something that Peary didn't do. And in fact, none of Peary's men other than Henson did. He learned how to speak the uh, Inuktut language the language of the Inukwi, and he learned it uh, very well. And I remember when when I was a much younger man in the 1970s in, in Kanak, I got to know a lot of the old hunters, and the really old people uh, remembered him from their youth and their childhood. Middle-aged people knew the stories about Henson and about Peary and, and, and everybody else who came up there. And they also knew that both Peary and Henson had relationships with Inuit women and both had children with them. Matthew Henson uh, left a child behind up there, Anaukuk. And uh, I knew Anaukuk. He used to say to me, because he was very curious about his biological father, Matthew Henson, And he used to say, you know, what do you know about my father's life in the USA? Do I have relatives down there? Did he have children in America? Do I have brothers and sisters down there? So they were, they were very curious about these people. Peary left a couple of kids behind in Northern Greenland, and I knew one of them quite well, Kali Paluk, Kali Peary. These old men were just very curious about uh, their biological fathers. The memories were, I wouldn't say fresh, but, uh, well, among the old men, the memories were still fresh. We're going to explore the amazing story of Peary's and Henson's sons later in our show. Once Peary and Henson believed that they had reached the North Pole in 1909, they never returned to Greenland and never saw their loyal Inuit partners again. Just as suddenly as Peary had arrived on his very first expedition, he left along with the supply of tools and other trade goods that the Inuit depended on. Fortunately, in 1910, Danish explorers Peter Freuken and Knud Rasmussen opened the Thule trading station at Cape York near Ita, which served as a store and base camp for their ethnological research in northern Greenland. By a lot of reports, the Inuit were astounded when Peary claimed to reach the North Pole and said, okay, we're here, you know, this is it. And uh, the Inuit looked around and said, but there's nothing here. This is uh, nothing different than uh, what we've been traveling through for days. 
a little bit of disappointment. I, I suspect that the fact that this long-sought goal was really nothing that they could see. The Quest for the North Pole is hosted by me, Kat Long. This episode was researched and written by me with fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Thanks to our experts, Krista Uliuk-Zawadzki, Russell Potter, and Ken Harper. The executive producers are Aaron McCarthy and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The show is edited by Dylan Fagan. For transcripts, a glossary, and to learn more about this episode, visit mentalfloss.com podcast. The Quest for the North Pole is a production of iHeartRadio and Mental Floss. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a, a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit mortonbuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.